welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast, and we are in Galicia. Yay! <laughs> Which means that our Camino Portugues Interior is over, um, barely after it got started. It was a 10-day Camino. Of course, our total Camino is not over yet, but this first part of our journey uh, has finished. Yes, we have completed the Camino Portugues Interior. So that feels like a bit of an accomplishment. All right. So in the last episode, we talked about the first half of this Camino. And so in today's episode, we're going to talk about the second half and then just wrap it up a little bit and uh, compare it with a couple of other Caminos and just talk a little bit overall about what we felt uh, about this Camino. So as we said last time, the second part of this Camino took place in the area known as Trasus Montes, which is beyond the mountains. And so it's this quite isolated area, I guess, up in the north, northeast part of Portugal. And we had been there a little bit before, but not to this extent, or certainly we'd never walked there before. And so we had a chance to discover it. And it was a very interesting region. Yeah, it was interesting to compare our experience there before with our experience now, because it was uh, on the trip when your parents were visiting. And so we had rented a car and we were traveling around. And we actually went to several of the places that we visited on this Camino, but in a very different way, in a very, very you know, just fly by, see one site in one town and then drive on to the next town. Whereas here, we obviously took things a lot more slowly this time and discovered a lot more small details along the way. Yeah, definitely. And as we've said before, that's one of the advantages of walking is that you get to take that time and really, uh, you know, take it all in and experience things in a different way. So the first thing that I noticed, I guess, on the trail or, or the thing that I think about now is that those last four days were very flat. And the, as we talked about last time, the first six days were, were quite hilly. There was quite a lot of elevation change. And we thought, this is, you know, this is a serious Camino. This is, um, you know, because Caminos are usually pretty flat. Um, depends on the route, of course. But in general, they're not, you know, these huge, um, you know, mountain hiking expeditions. Um, but we did quite a lot of ups and downs those first few days. And, you know, I hadn't really looked at the elevation changes before we started the Camino. And I kind of thought that, the, the Doro Valley, which we knew about, and then the Trasus Montes section at the end would be the hillier parts. But it turned out that those first four days and then the Doro were the hillier parts. And that was really flat the last four days. Yeah, well, I guess uh, we should take the name a bit more literally because <laughs> Trasus Montes literally means behind the mountains. So we had to climb through the mountains first to get there. And then once we got there, that part was actually pretty flat. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting in terms of the of the landscape that, you know, we'd come through the Douro Valley and basically all you see is vineyards, more or less, uh, everywhere you see. And then really, once we left Villa Real, which is where we recorded the previous episode, the vineyards basically just stopped um, yeah. pretty much completely. Uh, we did see a few from that point on, but they were very small scale, very small plots. And so these you know, these very large vineyards, these sweeping views of vineyards that just completely stopped. And we understood that that would happen. But really, I think in terms of uh, the landscape, it, it returned back to something similar to what we'd seen the first few days before we'd hit the Douro Valley, that we began seeing uh, some forests again. We began seeing these uh, broom shrubs that have kind of been an interesting feature of our Camino, these uh, yellow flowers or the flowers that are 
the shrubs that are flowering in May in this bright yellow that covers the valley. When we were in the Dora, we didn't see them at all. And we thought that maybe that they had finished. Mm, um, nope. But then we started seeing a lot of them again uh, these last few days. But it was just, it was a very rural area as we'd expected, um, being a bit more cut off from the rest of the country. And so it was just really nice, I think, to see a lot of these country scenes. We passed through some really nice villages and you know, we would see these houses with these small agricultural plots and almost like veggie patches. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, you just see, you know, one vine perhaps or, or some other things being grown. And it was, it was really um, charming, I think, in that way. Yeah, it really looked like subsistence agriculture, you know, people growing food primarily to consume themselves and not on a large scale that they would then sell. I mean, maybe they do take some access to a market nearby, but yes, it was very small plots that were being cultivated, which, yeah, was very picturesque and much more interesting than, you know, vast monocultures of tomatoes and other things that we have seen on other in other parts of Portugal and other Caminos. So it was very beautiful rural scenery. The thing that was a little bit unexpected uh, in this second part of the Camino is that we saw some interesting, let's call it wildlife, uh, in the form of snakes. Yeah, we came across quite a few snakes, both dead and alive. Yeah, in total we counted six snakes that we saw, three alive and three dead, and they were all what we would describe as being quite large. Um, Let's say Mm -hmm. as an estimate between 50 and 60 centimeters, let's say, so up to two feet um, in length. And that was a little bit scary, especially the live ones. I mean, I think you have a professed fear of snakes. And yeah, I, I'm also afraid of snakes because I don't know which ones are poisonous and which aren't. So when I come across one, yeah, it is quite unnerving. And so, yeah, there were a few pretty close encounters, you know, on a very narrow path. So it was pretty hard to... Uh, get past them uh, without, you know, coming into close range where we could have been bitten. Uh, we weren't, and it seemed like they were probably scared of us just as much as we were of them. Yeah, I think the one in particular was the third one that we saw where it was on the left side of the trail, and it was a very overgrown trail at that particular stage. And so there was kind of forest on one side, but the the path itself had lots of weeds and, and sort of shrubs and that kind of thing. And I walked almost in line with it before I saw it, and I was just slightly ahead of you. And then suddenly I saw it on the, on the left side, and it was in the process of eating a small bird. But it wasn't moving at all, but I sort of saw it and was quite shocked by it and then kind of gave it the widest berth that I could, which was not very wide um, because the, I'm guessing here, but the trail was, would have been no more than three meters wide, two or three meters wide. So I went all the way to the right side and then sort of signaled to you just behind me that there was this snake coming and you kind of approached slowly. Uh, and then at a certain point, because it hadn't really moved at all, at a certain point then it just slithered away in the other direction. But then yeah, we got to really see it. Yeah, I think he was probably it. annoyed that we had interrupted his lunch. So, yeah, continued to eat the bird for a little while. And then I think it, what might have uh, spurred him to, to actually leave was because I had my walking stick and you were telling me, oh, there's a snake and I couldn't see it because the grass was quite tall. And, and so I was pointing with my stick in his general direction, trying to say, oh, is it there? Is it there? And probably the stick was intimidating to him. And so then eventually he did leave the bird and slither away. Maybe he came back for the rest of it later after we were gone. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. And I had realized 
I did realize after that that I had seen a, a dead bird previously on the trail, and I, it was just a bit confusing to me when I saw it at the time. But then later, after we'd seen this snake, I thought, oh, that was probably another victim of either that snake or, or another snake as well. And then on the last day on the CPI, we saw three dead snakes on the same day. In three different places. In three different places, but they'd all been killed by cars. Uh, or evidently. I guess, or, or possibly people, because one was in a village, uh, you know, a very small village on a, a road where cars could have gone by, but we didn't see any cars there. And I feel like maybe that one might have been killed by villagers who saw it and were intimidated, threatened by it, and then just left it there. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, they were all on the side of the road, and but one of them was in kind of the suburbs of the city of Chavez. It was kind of on the outskirts of the city, but it was in a, a suburban area. It wasn't mm-hmm. in, a, in a rural country area at all, and so that was a bit weird to see, see a snake in that scenario, but, but so be it. Yeah, so that's been our primary encounter with the fauna on this trail has been snakes. I guess we have, I mean, we've seen a lot of birds and insects. Uh, We saw some rabbits. We did see a couple of rabbits. Uh, Yeah, but the snakes definitely, uh, that experience stayed with us longer, for Mm -hmm. sure. One of the other things that we noticed, and, and this is anecdotal, so and it was interesting that I think we formed a bit of a narrative about it, and then that narrative was sort of flipped on its head a little bit, was that those first two, three days in Trazus Monts, we found that the people who we came across seemed a bit more reserved mm-hmm. than the people who we'd come across previous to that uh, on this Camino. And so often, you know, when we pass someone either in a village or sometimes there are local people walking on the trail for whatever reason, you know, we usually greet them and then they usually greet, greet us back. And... And people throughout the Camino up to that point had been very interested in us sometimes. They often asked if we were going to Santiago. We found that there was quite a good local awareness of the route because it's a, a government-promoted route and there's signage and there's you know, schools being converted into albergues. You know, people are, know what it's all about. They see us walking north. They know that we're not going to Fatima, which by that point is south. And so people were really friendly with us. And we had this one great encounter on the way to Lamego on the fourth day where a, a man started talking to us in this village and then he invited us into his cave. He, was, he had this wine cave and uh, gave us some wine at 10.25 in the morning. And we had a nice conversation, nice chat with him. And that was, you know, that was quite extraordinary really, but that was sort of indicative of that friendliness that we'd felt. And then when we got to Trazos Montes, yeah, it just seemed that, you know, if we didn't greet someone, they wouldn't greet first. Mm-hmm. Or if we did greet someone, they would just sort of greet back, but not stop or, or not really seemed that enthusiastic mm-hmm. um, and you know again maybe it's anecdotal maybe it's not but it just seemed like perhaps you know this is an isolated area perhaps there's a, a sort of an inbuilt mm. mis- not necessarily mistrust but just a suspicion of outsiders right um, and you know they're not used to perhaps seeing outsiders and so maybe that was just a different reaction from yeah. what we'd expected from what we'd experienced previously yeah, I mean, we didn't have any, you know, negative experiences no, of anyone saying anything bad to us or making us, uh, yeah, feel uncomfortable. It was just just a vibe that we both got individually, I, I think, because I remember there was one day where we were walking separately, as we often do. We walk at different paces. And so we had both come across the same three or four local people that we had passed by, but, you know, at different times. And then when we met up later... Uh, you said, I met, came across some locals, but they didn't seem that friendly. And I said, yeah, that, that was my impression too. Yeah, they just, like you said, seemed very reserved. 
And maybe that is, you know, the, like you said, the fact that it's an isolated area. And so traditionally, yeah, they were just kept to themselves and didn't deal with outsiders very often. Right. But then on our last day on the CPI, we had a completely different experience with locals actually on both sides of the border, because on that last day you cross from Portugal into Spain. And we had this really interesting and really great experience in the morning on that stage while we were still in Portugal. So we've been walking for some time and we were ready for our first stop of the day, which is our breakfast stop where we usually have like a packet of biscuits or something with us. And we just sit down and after about six or eight kilometers to just have some breakfast. And we came into this village and it was a small village, but there were arrows one way. And then there was a sign for a cafe another way, which we thought was strange uh, right from the start, I think, because, you know, in a lot, in a lot of these villages, there really were no services or cafes. A lot of the villages on the CPI were very small. And we kind of talked about how it was almost a, a feast or famine type of Camino where you had some cities every, you know, two, three days along the way. We passed through about four cities, um, where you have all the services you want, obviously. But then between those, you had these tiny villages, which just had no shops or no bars or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So we were just a bit intrigued by this sign because it, it just seemed like that village wasn't large enough to sustain a cafe. Mm-hmm. And so we followed the cafe sign away from the Camino. And then we came across these, I think, three locals who were talking quite animatedly in this open courtyard. And then you basically uh, went up to them and said, is there a cafe near here or and they said, yes, there is, but it's closed. It's only open on weekends. And then you said, is there like a bench or somewhere where we can just sit down? And then one of the guys was like, oh, well, no, but this um, this house right here is my house. And, and the steps outside, you can just sit on them because no one's going to come out the door because it's my house. Mm-hmm. And so we sat down and started eating our biscuits anyway. And then they just started coming and, and talking to us. And we talked with, with several people. And it was quite interesting. They were very friendly. They offered us anything that we wanted. And they said, do you want to come in? Do you want a coffee? Do you want water? Do you want anything? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was this guy originally. And then at a certain point, he left. And then one of the women who he was talking to came out and she started talking to us for a long time and she'd been to Fatima three times on pilgrimage and anyway she's like do you want things do you want fruit do you want water and we you know politely declined and we're okay we have our you know we have our things with us um we don't want to put them out and anyway and then she left and came back and brought us oranges and biscuits um, which was really nice and the oranges were amazingly good by the way they were we had them later I mean, oranges are not something we usually carry because they're quite heavy. They are very heavy. And someone had given us oranges earlier, a few days earlier, and we had mm-hmm. carried them for a day or so. And then thought, why are we carrying these oranges? Um, mm-hmm. But these particular ones that, that this lady gave us were very, very good oranges. Yeah. And then there was another guy who actually drove by in a car during that same encounter while we were talking to these people sitting on this guy's steps. And he was from the next village, which was about four kilometers on. And there was an albergue there, which we knew and we had already decided that we were going to continue further that day all the way to Verin and stay in the albergue there. But he was really talking up the albergue in his village to the point that I actually thought that he ran it, that he was the owner or, you know, the manager or whatever it was. Cause he was really trying to sell it was at least that's how it came across. And he was also saying there was a bar there and we could come and have a drink. And so we said, okay, we'll come and have a drink more than anything, just because I felt bad, like he was really friendly and I didn't want to offend him by, you know, not taking up his offer of his albergue and bar. So I thought, okay, well, when we pass by there, we'll stop and have a drink. And so we did. 
Um, but he was nowhere to be found. And the alberga was amazing. This whole building was amazing. It was a, a social center uh, with a very large eating area and an outdoor seating area. And it was in a you know beautiful historic building. And there were a couple of women working there. And we also talked to them. And they were also very friendly. Um, but the guy wasn't there. And so now I think that he wasn't really associated with it at all. He just happened to live in that village and was telling us, hey, come to my village because you know we have these great services for pilgrims. Yeah, I think one of the things we've talked about uh, so far in the series is how there are these albergues that have been set up and that they used to be schools. And I think, you know, they go through this process of, of refurbishing these places. And, you know, I'm sure there's a, a sort of a, a, a selling to it, the idea that, you know, people are told, oh, right, we're going to make this albergue and all these pilgrims will come and it'll be great. And then, unfortunately, as we've talked about, there aren't that many pilgrims who do the CPI. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they have this space, they've set it up, they've done a lot of work and getting it all ready, and then they're waiting for people to come. So when he saw us, he uh, he was you know really keen to get us to go there I guess to you know enjoy the the service that they've put on. So that was really nice. And then later on the same day in in Galicia we met some some women in another village who were very nice and they offered us yogurt and beer and all kinds of things um, and talked to us about fountains and, and yeah. Well, they were complaining that there was no fountain in their town. They were saying we should really have a fountain here for the pilgrims who pass by who need water. There was a, a table, a picnic table and benches, and we were sitting there and having our lunch. Um, but yeah, they were kind of complaining about the local authorities, you know, that they hadn't installed a fountain there and that they didn't have signage as well as they should. And, uh, yeah, kept offering us whatever they could think of that we might need. Oh, do you want to come into my house to use the bathroom? Do you want it? You know, is there anything we can give you? So yeah, people on both sides of the border were extremely friendly that day. Yeah, so maybe we jumped to conclusions a little bit thinking that people were, were more reserved or maybe it was just the, the circumstances that we found ourselves in. But um, yeah, in the end, we made it to Verin and that was the end of our CPI and it was a Camino that we thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. We really loved it. Uh, like you said, it was it was very rural. You know, my just kind of looking back, my overall thoughts are, you know, that we were mostly walking through very, you know, rural countryside and beautiful vistas, but then, yeah, also had quite a few cities uh, with interesting sites to see there as well. Right. So there's a couple of more things to talk about just before we get into uh, some comparisons. And so you just mentioned the cities, and one of those is a city called Chavez, which was on the penultimate night of the CPI. So it's basically the last, um, certainly the last city and really the last major settlement in Portugal. Then you head north into Galicia and you pass a couple other little villages, but that's it. Um, and we'd been to Chavez before, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of, of the episode, it was one of the places that we'd spent a very small amount of time in uh, with my family a few years ago. And by a weird uh, coincidence, you had spent a couple of nights there just uh well, a few days before we started this Camino, which is a long story that's not worth telling. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you'd been to Chavez and spent a little bit of time there, and I had only just spent this hour or two there with, with my family a few years ago. And so we were looking forward to going back. And Chavez is a really great city. It is. Yeah, I think I decided that it was my favorite of the cities that we passed through on this Camino. Might be, I'm a little bit biased because I did have this experience there right before the Camino where I stayed there for a couple of days and, and that was quite interesting. Uh, and so, yeah, I had time to explore it when I wasn't exhausted after having walked 20 something kilometers the same day. 
But yeah, it is it is really interesting. It has a very long history. There are some ancient Roman sites to see there. The architecture is also quite different from anything else I've seen in Portugal. Um, I mean, it has some of the stone granite buildings that you would expect to find in in Galicia and in the north of Portugal. But then it also has some buildings that are just painted in lots of pastel colors and have these wooden balconies and just doesn't look like that part of the country at all and people were friendly there and it has a lovely river running through it and i just found it to be a very pleasant you know small city small town kind of vibe yeah and we had quite a short day um coming into shavis so we had the whole afternoon to explore um which was great and yeah like you said there's roman baths there's a Roman bridge, which has two Roman milestones still uh, intact on the bridge. Um, there's a medieval castle. So yeah, there's all kinds of things to explore. And one of the other charming things, which we remembered from our first trip there, was that there's a stepping stone bridge over the river, mm-hmm. which is, it's just quite charming because there there's this Roman bridge, which has obviously been there longer than the stepping stone bridge. Uh, and there's another, at least one other bridge. So it, it's kind of funny that the stepping stone bridge exists. You know, usually think of that as a more rural thing over a, a small stream or a narrow stream or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, we talked last time about this this great stepping stone bridge that we really loved in the countryside earlier on the Camino. Uh, but to have it, you know, within this, you know, reasonably sized city was was interesting. But it, yeah, it's just another little uh, cute thing that Chavez has to offer. And the other thing that we found quite interesting, which was the day uh, before that. So it was our eighth day. And this was something that you'd read about and was sort of describing to me and it was sort of hard to picture it exactly but basically we walked through this area that had been known for its natural springs and still is to some extent and still is to some extent but basically in the late 19th century and early 20th century it became this very popular kind of spa retreat type of destination because that was during this period where it was believed that you know, healing uh, was done in these kinds of areas with, you know, mountain air and and with these natural and, springs and, and things like that. And the water itself was thought to have, you know, specific kind of healing curative properties for specific ailments. And actually, this is something that you do still see in Portugal on a smaller scale. We've run into it on previous Caminos. Uh, there was a town and we had read that they had baths there. And so... We thought, okay, well, uh, maybe we can have a rest day there and then we'll be able to hang out in the baths. Did we have a rest day? I don't remember. Maybe it was just that we decided to make that an end stage. We decided to spend the night in that town. Yeah, we had a short, that was on the nascent. We had a short day coming in rather than doing a longer day. And we thought, hey, we can spend time in the baths in in the the afternoon. And as it turned out, it wasn't really the kind of baths that we were picturing. It's more... Yeah, it's kind of a medical center where you go to have specific treatments that are done with the water, with the water that comes out of the natural springs there. And so, yeah, this was something that used to be very well known, particularly in in this part of northern Portugal and also southern Galicia. And people would come from all over Europe for, well, particularly wealthy people. And so, yeah, what we saw on this Camino this time was these old spa resorts, most of which have fallen into decay and have long since been abandoned, uh, but at one time were very, very beautiful, ritzy resort areas from, you know, these kind of Belle Epoque, say late 1800s, early 1900s buildings. And it was all very, very interesting. Yeah, so these were huge hotels. 
mm-hmm. and as you said, there now all of them except one are completely abandoned mm-hmm. and have fallen into absolute ruin and have been taken over by the nature that surrounds them. There's one in particular that there's trees inside it. The the basically the entire facade almost has vines and and things growing on it, and it it looks like it's been abandoned for fifty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really interesting, but it, it's. It was fascinating because the area is sort of making a bit of a comeback with modern tourism. And so basically we were walking on the trail and we passed some of these abandoned hotels and it was just really eerie and and, and you just sort of thought, oh, well, you know, you can imagine what this was like, you know, a hundred years ago, but now, you know, this kind of concept is completely gone and, and, and there's nothing to it. But then as we went further, part of the area where the actual springs are has been kind of revitalized and turned into this park. And I think modern tourists come and check it out, even for the nostalgia of, of thinking back to this this prior period. But it's kind of interesting. They've redone some of it. And one of the areas where the water comes out, you can go into and you can actually drink the water. Yeah. And that town or that area is called Pedras Salgadas which literally means like salty rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a it's a brand of sparkling water that you see everywhere in Portugal. And I've always seen it on menus. I never order it because I don't really like sparkling water. I prefer just uh, plain water. But uh, if you ever do order sparkling water in Portugal, it's very likely to be Pedras Salgadas. And um, this, as it turns out, is where it comes from. And so I think that's Part of why it's been refurbished is because the water is still used by these companies, you know, the, the bottled water companies. Uh, there are a few of them that uh, still use these different springs. And so in Pedra Salgadas, the water actually comes out of the ground already sparkling, already with gas in it. So that was the water that we were offered to sample. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, as you said, you don't really like sparkling water and I don't really either, but... Um, that was really interesting just to have uh, sparkling water coming right out of the ground. But it was just made for this kind of fascinating contrast between these huge hulking ruins that we'd seen and then suddenly this park, which is really well maintained and taken care of. And they've built these what they call tree houses, which are these wooden, not hotel rooms, but they're sort of individual tree houses, cabin type things that are sort of up raised off the ground. Uh, and so there's now this sort of modern tourist industry around Pedro Salgadas while the century-old tourist industry is just completely in ruins. And so, yeah, it's a really interesting day to walk past all of this stuff. Yeah, definitely something that we've never seen on any other Camino before or never seen anywhere, really. So, yeah, it's just one more little piece of the puzzle that is Portugal. And now, you know, every time I see Pedra Salgadas on a restaurant menu, I will remember our day in Pedra Salgadas. Okay, so as we were walking and we were providing some updates on the Camino Santiago Forum, people started asking us to compare some of these Portuguese Caminos. I mean, it almost happened by accident, but, you know, as we talked about in our first season, we walked the, the Camino, the Camino Portugues, the standard CP, because we could leave from our own house and it was the pandemic and we didn't know what else we could do. And then last year it was similar because the border with Spain was closed. And so we walked a Portuguese Camino. And then this year, just because of various other things, we, we're still walking here in Portugal, which is, you know, where we live. But, you know, people are now starting to look to us because we seem to have walked more Portuguese Caminos than other people that we know. And so people asked us to make some comparisons. And I think the interesting ones are between the CPI that we've just walked, the Torres, which we walked some of last year, and the Gueira dos Arrieiros, 
I've now come around to saying Gaeta, which is the Galician pronunciation rather than Jeda, which is the Portuguese pronunciation that I was using last year, um, under your influence. <laughs> well, glad that I could have some influence. And these three are kind of northern Portuguese communities. They're similar in length. And so, you know, there's certainly a, a case to be made for comparing them. And one of our good Camino friends, I remember before the pandemic, had written a post on the Camino forum saying, you know, I'm thinking of doing one of these three Caminos, the, the Torres, the CPI, or the Gaeta. And I mean, I think at that time we certainly weren't even really aware of the Gaeta, which is a sort of very new and up and coming Camino. But she was particularly interested to see what our impressions were of, of all of these three. And the first thing, uh, the first caveat is that with the Torres that we walked and talked about last year, we only walked about half of the unique stages of the Torres, which was the second half from Trencoso to Braga. So there's this whole other part of seven or eight stages starting in Salamanca in Spain that, that we don't know. So in that way, it, it sort of grates at me a little bit that that's that incomplete Camino, but because we had joined it from Trencoso, that was the only choice that we had really. Maybe we'll go back and walk the beginning of it one day. And from what I, the little bit that I've read, I do think that the first half of the Torres is very different from the second half that we walked. So when we're talking about the Torres, we're just talking about that second half. And so I think if we were ranking them, because we got asked to rank them, <laughs> one, two, and three, I think, well, without having checked with you beforehand, I think we would both agree that the Torres would be the third one. Yes. And the reason for it, as we talked about in our episode last year, was that there was just so much asphalt. And for several days, it was, for example, during the Doro Valley uh, and in and around that area. And the scenery was amazing. And, you know, the countryside was really nice. But you were kind of walking on these country lanes on asphalt. And you're kind of thinking, you know, why aren't we on sort of nicer paths than this to enjoy, better enjoy the scenery that's around us? But then after that, it really became quite urban and, and suburban mm-hmm. uh, for the last three or four days. And so we were still on the asphalt, but also just not really getting a lot of great nature in, in those parts. And so it was hard on, on uh, knees and ankles, especially for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, my feet don't do well on asphalt. And so, yeah, unfortunately, looking back on the Torres, I don't have particularly fond memories of it. I mean, for us, it was really just a way to link the two other Caminos that we really wanted to do, which was the Nascent and the Gaeta. And uh, so it didn't matter so much that it wasn't a great Camino. Um, but yeah, honestly, it wasn't. Although the first day, the, the first our first day on the Torres from Trancoso was spectacular. And that was very, very rural and very rugged, wild countryside. And we thought, wow, if, this, if the Torres is going to be this, this is going to be fabulous. Um, and unfortunately, the rest of it wasn't like that at all. But I think maybe the first part that we haven't done yet is a lot more rugged. So, yeah, maybe that's worth doing. Yeah, and it certainly has its its high points as well. As you mentioned, this first day was great. The Douro Valley was spectacular. Braga and Guimarães are these cities at the end, which are really great cities. We'd already been to both of them, so maybe that lessened it a little bit for us. So it has its highlights. It was just uh, just so much road walking. And so we come to comparing the Gaeta and the CPI, and I've sort of gone back and forth myself. I haven't checked with you as to which one uh, I preferred, and I, I'm not yeah. sure I've completely settled on an answer here. I would say that because the second half of our Gaeta was kind of washed out with rain. Yes. Uh, and that's not something that everybody will face, so you mm-hmm. don't, you want to be a bit more objective and not sort of factor that in too much. But I think I enjoyed walking the CPI more just because we had better weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, when you walk in rain all day, day after day for five, six days, you know, for us, that's a little bit miserable. Yeah. Um, so I think I enjoyed the CPI more for that reason. But I've kind of been going back and, you know, this is 
doing pros and cons and comparing in this way, uh, you know, I don't know if that's really the, 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 the real spirit of the Camino to sort of say, well, this has this and this has that and they cancel each other out. You know, I think it's more of a, it should be more of a feeling thing perhaps. But, you know, the Gator has the National Park and the CPI has the Doro Valley. So they both have this spectacular scenic section. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Gator has the actual Gator, which is this Roman road with these Roman milestones, which is really cool. But as we mentioned in Chavez at the end of the CPI, you have these Roman milestones that are on a bridge. And these are actually, even though there's only two of them, um, they're much better preserved. And you can really read the inscriptions and everything uh, mm-hmm. about Trajan and talks about his conquests in Dacia and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know if those cancel each other out as well. They're both kind of nature first Caminos where, you know, there are some historic sites, but it's mostly about being in rural areas and and being among scenery. So I think all told, they're quite similar in, in that way, just in big picture way. But what would you say? I agree that, you know, on a very personal level, the rain did kind of ruin the Gata for me, which is really unfortunate. I mean, it rains a lot in Galicia, so it's to be expected. But yeah, just looking back on my overall feeling of how much I enjoyed it, I would have to agree that I enjoyed the CPI more, probably just because of the rain. Uh, one thing I really did enjoy on the Gata that I didn't feel so much on the CPI was this local grassroots promotion of it and the people, the individual people who we met and who helped us so much and who were really so passionate about getting this off the ground and promoting this Camino and making it a success. Um, that was something really special on the Gata and on the CPI. The, the infrastructure is there and I was really impressed with the infrastructure that has been built and it was really interesting to stay in these old primary schools that have been converted into albergues. But the people who we met along the way, I, I don't think were really personally invested in this Camino. You know, I don't know exactly what their role was, you know, the people who would let us into the albergues, for example, but I got the impression that they were just villagers who happened to, you know, have been volunteered or assigned the task of keeping the upkeep of the albergue and letting people in. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't have that feeling like I got on the Gata, um, which I haven't really experienced on any other Camino that was, you know, just so, so much grassroots passion for the Camino itself. I kind of see the CPI as something that balances the urbanism of the Torres with the ruralism of the Gata, because the Gata was very rural kind of throughout. You didn't have so many cities like you did on the CPI. No, I mean, just to jump in, it's interesting because you start in Braga, which is an amazing city and it's let's say it's probably better than any of the cities on the CPI, and you end in Santiago, which is also an advantage. And it's a unique entry into Santiago, which is also cool. You don't join up, you know, with the CP or with the Frances or whatever. It's its own specific entry into Santiago. So you have these two cities as the bookends, but between them, there are basically no cities. There's right. Ribadavia, which is, let's say, a town, mm-hmm. which has some history to it. Um, but yeah, whereas on the CPI, you have these cities kind of dotted every sort of three days worth of walking throughout the Camino. Yeah. Uh, which also, you know, is useful for stocking up on supplies and things like that, which was a bit tricky on the Gata sometimes. We, yeah, really had to plan carefully where we would be able to buy food because and in most of the cases we were buying food in very tiny little mini markets in small villages with a very limited supply, 
Whereas on the CPI, we did have chances to stock up in larger supermarkets. So that was convenient. And then we could head out into the rural countryside and explore, you know, and enjoy the beautiful nature. So I feel like that was kind of a, a nice balance of the two that you kind of got the best, best of both worlds in that way on the CPI. Yeah, I think overall, the thing that you mentioned, this amazing welcome on the gator was, is the thing that puts the gator over the top, perhaps. Mm. Um, or it's just what makes it really, really special. But look, both of them are great Caminos. Hopefully, if you do them, you get good weather. If you had to choose between them, oh, it's, it's a tough one. But if you want to end in Santiago or if you only have a, a shorter period of time, then, then the gator is, is a great choice. But the CPI is also really interesting. You know, it, it's, a re- it's a good way to experience a different part of Portugal. So many people just experience the kind of Western corridor of Portugal and with Lisbon and Porto and then going down to the Algarve or, or something like that. So to, to really go to a kind of unknown part of the country. I mean, cities like Lamego and Chaves, they're not really known by international no. visitors or tourists. You know, they're not top three places to visit in Portugal, but they're really interesting. They've got a lot of history and they have a lot to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess they're known by locals more than anything because of the Inadoige, the Into National Highway, uh, which does kind of parallel the CPI for most of the way and then continues on all the way down through the country. So, um, yeah, it is an area that I think also has some mystique and some nostalgia for, for Portuguese people as well. So it's really interesting to be able to explore that but on foot and not in a car. Yeah, just, well, one last point here on the on that highway, because we mentioned it last time and that we'd, we'd met these two Portuguese guys who were walking it, which we found really unusual, but really interesting that they were choosing to walk the entire length of the country on a highway. But yeah, this these last few days, that, that really ratcheted it up, so the whole end to nostalgia, because Chavez is the beginning of it or the end of it, depending on the direction that you're going. And so there are... And because two years ago, they celebrated the 75th anniversary of the highway. Unfortunately, that was 2020, the first pandemic year. So I'm sure they had lots of things planned, which they then had to kind of scuttle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we saw all these signs celebrating the, the N2 and there's like, you know, bars and stuff that are called the N2. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, um, yeah, even like memorabilia and stuff. And we got, as we mentioned last time, we got offered stamps. You know, mm-hmm. people like, oh, we'll give you the N2 stamp. We're like, no, we're, we're walking to Santiago. We don't want the N2 stamp. Yeah, one of the hotel owners uh, tried to give us a magnet, an N2 magnet. And yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure he really understood the, the difference between what we were doing, you know, between <laughs> pilgrims on the Camino and the N2 tourists. Um, yeah, because he kept looking for his N2 stamp. And we said, no, no, it's okay. We, we're not actually doing the N2. And then we, we when he when his back was turned, we quietly put the magnet back because we didn't really want the magnet yeah it was kind of a heavy magnet we didn't (laughs) want to carry it all the way to santiago and beyond and so just finally you know i think now we have a pretty good overview not just of the caminos in portugal but also the caminos in spain and you know i think at this point you you kind of know what different pilgrims are looking for and you can sort of say right if you're interested in this this and this then this is a good camino for you if, on the other hand, you like this, this, and this, then maybe this other Camino is better suited to what you're looking for. And so if we just sort of look over the CPI, you know, I think we can fairly easily kind of talk about what pilgrim this would be suitable for or what kind of category it fits into. So I think the first thing is, uh, who is it for? Well, it's for pilgrims who are interested in a bit of an adventure. 
because mm-hmm. you're in, you know, some rural parts of Portugal. Um, it's for pilgrims who are interested in, as we said, this kind of nature first type of Camino. You know, if you're hoping, like what we saw on the Nascent last year, to see a castle every day or every other day, okay, you're not getting that. There are some historic places, but it really is more about the nature. Everybody who walks it talks about how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. So that's really the, the draw card of it, mm-hmm. I think. And if you're looking for some solitude, it's certainly a good Camino in, in, mm-hmm. in that way. And yet, if, you, if you're looking for a Camino that has a good albergue network and that can really be quite a cheap Camino, right. then that also works. Yeah, and that's a big difference between the Nascent, where there were very few albergues, and so we spend a lot more money on accommodation than we did walking that than, the, than on the CPI. Yeah, so we spent 10 nights on the CPI, and we spent five of those in albergues. Uh, two of them were donativos. One of them was three euros for a bed, which is quite amazing. Uh, the other two were, I think, seven and, and eight. And then there were a couple of other occasions, depending on the stages that we we chose, where we didn't stay in albergues, but we potentially could have. So you could stay in an albergue almost every night. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and Portugal is cheaper than Spain in, in, in a general sense. So it's a very budget-friendly Camino. And these albergues do have functioning kitchens as well. Yeah, they were pretty well equipped with, you know, pots and pans and, and things that you would need to actually cook, which is different than the Xunta albergues in Galicia. So if those things sound like the, the kind of things that you like as a pilgrim, then the CPI could be for you. Who the CPI is not for, um, let's say people who want to meet a lot of other pilgrims. Yeah. Since we did not meet any. No. The first, well, we met a couple of Bithigrinos in Benin. Yeah, like. that doesn't count. They weren't on the CPI. <laughs> They'd come from the Sanabres. So we didn't meet a single pilgrim. You know, again, if you, if you want the infrastructure whereby every hour or every hour or two of walking you can stop for a nice cafe have a coffee have a snack something like that then the cpi is is not for you also i mean we've just been mentioning this a little bit about how there were these cities but then also these rural areas so there were several days and and you touched on it just before where we carried out all of our food for the day and yeah, it goes back to this feast or famine idea that, yeah, we would stock up at these big supermarkets, but then they're, they're literally for the whole day, there'll be nowhere to buy food. Yeah, including where we ended up sleeping, mm-hmm. it, there was also nowhere to buy food uh, for dinner that night. And no restaurants in, in most yeah. of those cases also. Um, so you do have to, you know, plan a little bit, especially if you're walking on a Sunday, you have to plan a little bit uh, in advance as well. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for the hustle and bustle of the Frances, let's say, then then that's not the Camino that the CPI is. If you're looking for a more introspective uh, solitary experience, and the CPI can be a great choice. I mean, it's it's always a little bit fraught with danger to perhaps compare one Camino to another. But I would say, and this is an imperfect exercise, I would say if you're looking to compare the CPI with maybe a more well-known Camino, uh, the Primitivo would probably be it. Mm, yeah. Because you're in rural areas, you have some lots of ups and downs, mm-hmm. and it's very scenic, uh, the length is similar, the Primitivo is a bit longer. Um, but it's... If you imagine the Primitivo and then, and then take out the, the pilgrims, then you have the CPI. And hopefully those pilgrims will start to arrive because it is really a great Camino that deserves more pilgrims. It does indeed. Um, and so that's the end of our discussion on the CPI, but we are going to continue on the Camino Sanabres. And so we will be back to talk about that next time. And so now that we are in Galicia, until then, buen Camino from me. And bol Camino from me. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com. 
and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.